Hello, everybody. Welcome to the morality of everyday things. Returning to our normal format, not talking with someone else, just just me and Jacob. We're back in the studio. Yeah. Hi, everybody. How's it going? You know that they can't respond to that, right? Um, <laughs> Why don't they love me? <laughs> <laughs> the morality of everyday things is a podcast where we discuss everyday philosophy. We discuss questions like, should billionaires exist? Are you a bad person if you work at Facebook? Or in today's episode, we're talking about NFTs. And the question isn't really a question. It's more like a provocative statement. We've mm. got NFTs, colon, the future of art or a pyramid scheme question mark so mm. there's a question in there i think ponzi scheme is more uh, a better business analogy but i i take that yes yeah is I, it, do you is know it, i debated that i feel like a pyramid scheme is clearer to people yeah but ponzi scheme is con. probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like the, the the future or a huge con slash bubble the truth is possibly that it's both yeah <laughs> we'll get into that today uh, as always we'll discuss some context we'll, we'll share some philosophical frameworks that are relevant to the discussion of art mm-hmm. uh, and ownership and then we'll kind of discuss a little bit about what we think jake and i are long-time friends, business partners. We run Stash.com and TreePoints.Green. We studied a mix of economics, politics, philosophy, and business management at Oxford far longer ago than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> it's less than a decade, more than five years. <laughs> uh, let, let's jump in. Jake. Let's do that. Just quickly wanted to say again, thanks to Cliff Mark for last time's episode. And thanks to everyone who tuned in and listened and, and gave us feedback on that. There was the listener who gave us just a fire emoji. That was very flattering. That Thank is you. Ama- uh, it's flattering. <laughs> uh, and, and if you're one of those new listeners, hi, welcome. Do please leave a review if you enjoy our back catalogue of this mm, new episode. Thanks to everyone who did actually. Yeah. Spotify have just enabled that feature. Yeah, uh, so we, have, cool. we have about 25 at the moment. And also you can check out our Patreon. Like Cliff, we do also have one. Jacob, let's go. Let's start with definitions. Yep. As always, good to define the key terms before we get into it. I noticed actually in our script, we don't have a definition of pyramid scheme up front. And quickly tell us pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes. Okay. So Ponzi scheme is where you are running a a quote unquote business where you are using the money from new clients to pay old clients and give them the impression that there's a business actually running mm-hmm. when actually there is no business. You are just convincing people there's a yeah. business and using the money from new investors to pay old investors. Which would work if there were infinite people in the world. Yes, but it would. Uh, and you, could cycle, you could just cycle back. <laughs> actually, it's a little bit like the Tinder swindler, if anyone's seen that. Oh, I haven't yet. Pyramid schemes are a little different. They're called a pyramid scheme because say you're the person at the top the idea is that you recruit people below you and you get a percentage of what they get right Mm -hmm. but in all of these things they actually you know force you to buy their products to sell etc etc so actually the people are generally putting in more money than they're taking out Mm -hmm. and only the people anywhere near the very very top who have many many layers of people below them make a lot of money generally the people who set up the scheme it falls down on the same problem of you'd need there to be loads of people for it to work for everyone but the mechanics are a little bit different and actually it's, it's it's also i think the fundamental thing about all of these is that there is no real business value being created. Yeah. Um, it's purely an influx of people who believe that there's business values, money, who is mm-hmm. propping the whole thing up. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of hype. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of hype. Because there's no substantive business, there is a kind of palpable sense of like this can't go on forever. And then a third one that might be irrelevant is just to talk a little bit about bubbles. Mm. Um, I think actually, I know as an economic student, the most famous bubble that everyone always talks about is the tulip bubble or tulip mania. Ah, back in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, in the Netherlands in like hundreds of years ago. I can't mm. I can't say when. 17, 18, maybe Middle um, Ages. Basically, for some reason, people just went mad for tulips. Uh, and they went up and up and up in value. And 1600s, I tell a lot. 1600s, about ages yeah. ago. Up and up and up in value to a level that was far out of line with the cost of 
growing a tulip mm. or making a tulip. And then at some point people realized this is ridiculously overvalued and it immediately crashed. Okay? <laughs> so I think as to whether which of these models or mental models is most relevant, we can discuss that later. It doesn't matter that much. The point is these are all examples where genuine value and perceived value mm. or, or market value become very, very like misaligned. Yeah. Uh, in, in the case of a bubble, at least there is some value there's some underlying there is, sort of value in what's being yeah, traded like, right tulips, tulips, are, tulips are worth something they were just being priced way higher than, than that number but in the case of something like pyramid schemes or ponzi schemes there's actually basically nothing of actual value there it's just flows yeah. of money it's just tricking people to put money into stuff you say um, the word tricking. Uh, is it necessary for the definition that there's like some sort of architect of evil? <laughs> um, <laughs> or or it, like, is it a deliberate yeah. ploy? Generally, yeah. I mean, yeah. okay, so for example, Ponzi schemes are named after, I can't remember his first name, but something Ponzi, who mm -hmm. set up this thing where he said he was an equity manager or whatever. And mm -hmm. yeah, he wasn't actually investing the money. He was just using new investors' money to pay old ones. Much like Madoff, right? That yeah, was the yeah, famous like recent Madoff, Ponzi, yeah. Ponzi scheme. Uh, like Bernie Madoff, yeah. In that case, yeah, there's an architect. In the case of something like a pyramid scheme, generally, yeah, there's there are architects who know that there's no no actual value being created mm. or maybe they're extremely deluded but i mean you'd have mm. to be a terrible business manager to not see that most people are losing money as to whether it's a requirement i mean i guess the funny thing about bubbles is that like it becomes harder to say like some people do believe like oh this thing is really valuable and this is something mm. that we'll, we'll, we'll kind of come to especially when you start to get into something like as we'll discuss art where value is in the eye of the beholder you know yeah. a tulip a tulip you can uh value based on the cost of producing the tulip right mm -hmm. but art art especially art with unique individual pieces it's worth what people are willing to pay for it. Exactly. Interesting. So coming back to the question, there were three key terms we had to define. Thanks, Ant. We've just done like Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, and bubbles. Up to you. We'll decide which is the more relevant model. There's also art. We'll come to that in a second. Let's start now with NFTs. What is an NFT? You've probably heard about them in the news recently. If you follow <laughs> any kind of sort of tech news or, yeah. or anything like that. If you watch the uh, South Park movie. <laughs> if you watch the South Park movie. Exactly. Well, kind of movie, you know, the two-part COVID thing. Go on, yeah. sorry. So NFTs stand for non-fungible tokens. And when we're talking about tokens, we're talking about something that can be used to represent ownership of unique items. They, in theory, let us tokenize things like art, which we'll come to, collectibles, even real estate. I mean, the supposed sort of limits of NFTs are, are fairly endless. It could apply to any kind of content. And then when we're talking about real estate, things in the real world as well. They can only have one official owner at a time. That's pretty key. Uh, and they're secured by the Ethereum blockchain. So yep. no one can modify the record of ownership or copy and paste a new NFT into existence yep. in theory. I didn't check enough if we how well we define it. But basically, just to give a super high level mm. breakdown of, of blockchains, they're basically a ledger. So mm -hmm. think of it as an Excel sheet or a database. But they're a database that everyone has access to and we all have to agree to change. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. And they're semi-anonymized, right? So say person XYZ has done blah, right? Mm -hmm. And say you are person XYZ, you'll have a password or a private key that lets you confirm that you are person XYZ, but no one without that key knows who person XYZ is. Mm -hmm. So that's the anonymity part that people talk about, right? And that's also the thing where you hear people like losing their private keys mm. and then losing, you know, millions worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin you mentioned is key. Bitcoin's probably the application of the blockchain that yeah. people are most familiar with. That's yeah. what kind of brought it to like exactly. prominence. So then let's take a really simple example, right? Really simple, maybe not for everyone, but you know, we run a business, there's equity in the business. For the sake of ease, there's a, a million shares, right? Mm -hmm. We literally have a cap table, a capital allocation table, which you can think of as an Excel sheet. And it's just every person has a number of shares allocated to them. Mm -hmm. You could flip it around. You could have a million rows with each share. 
and allocated each, to a person. Allocated to a person, right? Sure. Now imagine that that ledger, there was some sort of consensus system where like anyone could access it. It would say person XYZ owns a share, person XYZ owns a share, etc. And yeah, we have to kind of communally agree. People have to submit changes they want to make to the ledger mm -hmm. uh, by paying and you know people have to communally ratify that by going through cryptography that is a really high level thing but basically think of it as this public excel sheet where there's each share that's basically kind of what an nft is right well you were saying you could tokenize anything mm -hmm. that's an example yeah if we put that in the ledger and tokenized each share mm -hmm. that would be an nft version of our cap table and the key thing to highlight there, the point about sort of decentralization, you're talking about people ratifying it, is that's not too different to how things work currently. The difference is Companies House holds the ledger. Companies House keeps a record of who owns the shares. For those who don't know, Companies House is like the oh, yeah. UK business, yeah, yeah, yeah. government business admin thing. It's where you submit your documents and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, thanks. The key thing is it's a government approved organization, possibly it's probably government owned, I don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's a central organization that holds the record. So it's basically, we vest trust in Companies House that they keep yep. the record accurate and yep. up to date. So that's the centralized thing. Exactly. The government is doing it. Instead, imagine if we distributed that power to like a thousand people to, I don't know, keep it safe or not rely on one person. Keep it secret. Keep, keep it safe. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, whenever we want to make a change, we just send it out to these thousand people and they're given a small reward for ratifying it. Nice. Right? That was actually quite a nice example. Very good. Um, I like now, that. That now, was off the cuff as well, guys. Yeah. That wasn't even in the script. Now imagine instead if you're an artist and you just keep a ledger of each of your pieces of art and who owns it mm. and the people who own it can buy and sell between them that's cool yeah that overlaps nicely with the story that we're about to tell you. I think, hopefully, I mean, if any of you are sort of familiar with the evolution of the internet from Web 1 through to the coming of Web 3, you can skip ahead, but this is yeah. quite a nice little story of where we've got to. I'm a little confused. What's Web 2? Web 2 is where we are now. What's Web 1? So Web 1, there is a, there's a definition coming. But I'll skip it. For you, Anne, we can touch the chase. What's the expression? Ah, uh, okay, I get it, I get it. I'm, I'm just cutting ahead. Of you <laughs> okay, so... Web 1, I'm, I'm reading the exact notes. Please. Web 1 is read-only pages. Yeah. So people can post documents online. Mm -hmm. Web 2 is kind of the age of apps. Read and write. Yeah. yeah. So for example, I can actually book an Uber. I can post on Reddit. Mm -hmm. Like I can interact with the thing and other people can see my interaction. Exactly. Whereas before it would be like, Web 1 is like, I can post my blog and people can read my blog. Yeah. Web 1 was really designed for companies or people who could actually like had the sort of power and capability to post this sort of information. Yep. And it was very much read-only. Yep. Read and write was the age of Web 2. That's where social media and other apps that you've just mentioned mm -hmm. come into play. And then Web 3, well, we'll come to that. Is that distributed ledgers? <laughs> Web 3, yeah, Web 3 is about decentralization again. So the, cool. the okay. key sort of architecture point of Web 2 is that it became centralized centralized around big platforms, the likes of Facebook, etc. And then Web 3 is about decentralization, putting power back in the hands of users, distributed technology, etc., etc. Okay, brief history of the internet to try and explain this. Um, let's go yeah in let's January, go back to 1996 cast yourself back i was what one in a little bit uh, <laughs> years old and you were, <laughs> i was gonna say you were a real prodigy yeah. <laughs> i wrote this article no but no, uh, it was it was bill gates yeah bill gates published what would go on to become one of the classic essays of the early internet and in it he describes the very characteristics of the internet that would lay the foundation for the creator economy uh, quote from him one of the exciting things about the internet is that anyone with a pc and a modem can publish whatever content they want, is what he wrote. So, I mean, a lot of people kind of saw it as like, oh my God, this is going to completely upend everything. What's the point in publishers when we can mm. just publish our writing online? 
right? Exactly. Uh, we don't need those uh, guardians anymore. Turns out, actually, those guardians are quite helpful for getting people to read stuff because <laughs> the problem becomes less distribution and getting people more, to listen. Yeah, more <laughs> curation. More, yeah, like, more curation. Sort but, of featuring the stuff that's actually good yeah, quality. We'll come back to that, though. So, in this essay, Gates did sound one warning, which was that the big challenge would be making sure content creators were paid fairly for their work. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is, yeah. you know, he's, he's called that. He's called that quite well. Yeah, he did. I mean, we'll come to these stats in a second on direct pay for people's work. But um, it's interesting that in the 90s, there was a period where, like, online advertising paid so well that you'd put up a blog, you make some ads, you monetize it, and it actually mm. would make a lot of sense. And that is just, you know, you can't live off ads on a blog anymore. It's just yeah. not possible. But um, talking specifically about creators and direct payment for their actual work, uh, the lived experiences of creators reflects this warning that Bill Gates said. Uh, interesting one for you. 90% of streaming royalties on Spotify go to the top 1.4% of musicians, mm, right? Uh, wow. and, and the top 1% of all streamers earn more than half of all revenue on Twitch. Also, just to clarify, you know, we're, we're giving these stats to kind of highlight it. It's going to be even more extreme you know, if you look at something like the top 0.1%, yeah. uh, so, so we said, sorry, that 90% of streaming royalties on Spotify go to the top 1.4%. Most of that will go to the top 0.5%. You're looking at the Drakes, the Ed Sheerans, yeah. the Adele's, yeah, yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and you know, I, I don't know, but I would venture to say the majority of that 90% will go to the 0.01%. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's more extreme than like the income tax <laughs> yeah, <laughs> distribution. Yeah, yeah. Very much. It's a very sharp exponential decline. Uh, for context, I mean, we say that we um, are, uh, according to listennotes.com, we're in the top 2.5% of podcasts. Mm. Uh, we currently don't monetize the podcast. Mm. To be honest with you guys, we, we have a good listenership on a relative scale, but that's, you know, Partially, we don't need to or want to, and partially, it's not at the point where it's obvious and easy to do so. Yeah, it's and true. And that's the top 2.5%. We have a stat here that says the top 1% of podcasters claim the majority of podcast ad revenue. And to speak to your earlier point, I'd expect most of that is Joe Rogan. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I mean, it's, that, it's literally, that. it's going to be the majority is the Joe Rogan yeah. types, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, it means that 99% of all creators, including even people who are famous or, or have millions of fans, mm. often are struggling to make a basic living online. Uh, it's something that's artificially holding them back from creating more content. Interesting as well, I want to say, it's part of what's driven the creation of these, and I love this as a concept, it's so interesting, and it relates to crypto, the idea of like tipping and stuff, right? Mm. Um, it's part of what's driven the creation of these platforms where it's like, if you like a content creator, you can just directly give to them like directly, Patreon, right? yeah like patreon right check out our patreon if you do enjoy our yeah content. but yeah no it's true it's interesting and the theory goes the internet was supposed to usher in this golden age of media a world of infinite abundance where anyone can create whatever they want anyone can find whatever they're interested in certainly the latter is pretty true uh, in fact both of those points are true people can be really creative people can find stuff but while gates's prediction that there was money to be made online through content has proven true much of that money has bypassed creators like Ant stats were just telling us and landed instead in the pockets of the platforms that aggregate people's attention that's true i mean actually another example and this is kind of points to like you know what counts as content right and actually given how much time people spend on these i'm going to say this is real content what about people who write engaging reddit posts what about mm. people who who post memes right those are content creators where even the most popular ones in the world actually don't make anything mm. uh, i mean granted there are some instagram meme accounts that probably make money uh, I, I remember i saw that there was a netflix series about it but like Mostly they're just nonsense accounts that repost other people's stuff, not like <laughs> creative hubs. Mm. And, you know, these are forms of content that, you know, lots of people enjoy. Millions of people, billions of people maybe enjoy. But yeah, I'd say billions of people enjoy memes and, you know, online so, well, at least posts. millions. <laughs> yeah, at, least, at least hundreds of millions. At least hundreds of millions in the world. Yeah. And yet those are content creators who generally make nothing. My God, what generous souls. 
Yep. So at the heart of the story of how the internet broke the media business model is the simple fact that the internet was not built to facilitate the flow of money. Yep. Like uh, there were real sort of trust concerns around that. It's why businesses like PayPal did so well in the in the sort of early dot-com era. Payments weren't built into the internet, internet's infrastructure. It was considered too risky. And Mark Andreessen, just a quote from him, he's a famous mm. entrepreneur investor from Silicon Valley. He called that the original sin of the internet. And I guess that speaks to Gates's warning that mm. you know, how, how we pay people fairly for their work is, is a massive is a massive challenge. Yeah. And that lack of payment infrastructure, as I mentioned, with the blog post in the 90s is the reason why so much of the internet is monetized via advertising, right? Rather than requiring users to pull out a credit card and type their information into a website, users can be monetized frictionlessly and indirectly by those centralized powers, paying not with their money, but with a different asset, their mm. attention, right? And that's precipitated a shift in power from the old gatekeepers of media who controlled content creation and distribution, publishers, record labels, movie yeah. studios, to those who amassed consumer attention at scale, the platforms. So YouTube has more than 2 billion monthly active users. Facebook has almost 3 billion. Although it's going down. <laughs> that's, uh, although that's now going down, yes. Spotify has 365 million. And with those mega-sized audience numbers come mega-sized ad revenues. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't uh, yeah. it? Yeah. In fact, Google and Facebook alone accounted for more than half the digital ad revenue generated in 2020. Also, interesting one. We'll come to this a bit, and it's the overlap between crypto and this uh, uh, thing. I don't know enough about it, but there's this browser, Brave Browser, mm -hmm. and it's back to with a token, basic attention coin or token. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is basically that you can load your browser with cash and automatically kind of, or, or I think the original idea was that you could load your browser with cash and it solves this problem. Like the things you interact with are, are, are slowly paid like micro amounts. Uh, and so cool. people like meme creators could feasibly, or like, you know, I don't know, you could embed that into Twitter and the tweets that you like and stuff get a little bit of reward. Mm. But uh, I do not think that's how it works. And even I think that they've kind of shifted away from that. Now they're more like about blocking ads or some nonsense like that. Anyway, Jake, interesting business yeah. model of advertising. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we, we've kind of said this, but just to sort of hit home the point, the business model of advertising profoundly shaped the way that platforms design their products. And it's the problem that has held creators back effectively. Platforms funnel traffic to content they know will be successful. It creates these power sorry, sorry, laws sorry. of success. Successful in holding user attention. Sorry, yeah. It's successful in holding user attention. And and it, it, this is what basically like, yeah, this is what drives that sort of power law distribution that we were talking about when we gave you the stats. It has a sort of feedback loop. It's that kind of chart effect. Like once something gets in the chart, it becomes mm -hmm. more popular. And then they drive more traffic to it because they've got a lot of data about what people are listening to, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you can kind of lock in users to networks that amass a lot of data. Okay. Um, so the problem there is that you're saying that the platforms have an incentive to push the content that gets the most attention. Exactly. We talk about that with Facebook a lot, yeah, right? And yeah. that's that's not really talking yeah. about content in the way that we're focusing yeah. on here. That can correlate with the best content, mm -hmm. but the problem is when that breaks down. Yes. So for example, fake news or yeah. angry posts, or, you know, maybe you could argue even... Crappy pop music. Like lowest common denominator yeah. content, right? Like stuff that has mass appeal, mm. but isn't necessarily rich art. Mm. Right, and we'll, we'll kind of discuss that. Yep. So anyway, all of this is where Web3 comes in. Web3, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, is the next theoretical iteration of the internet. And it's all about decentralization, which is a movement away from the power of these platforms, platforms being like Spotify, Facebook, etc. Users become creators and Web3 will be based on blockchain technology. So some features of Web3, actually, they already exist. For example, you know, blockchains are widely used. They have lots of applications, most notably to power cryptocurrencies like Bitcoins mm -hmm. and NFTs to come back to the question and where we all started. Mm -hmm. They're an example of this. Yeah. So to, to use the example that we gave early on the episode, you can kind of think of the use of blockchains for cryptocurrency as 
like, imagine you had a database with literally every single dollar or every single cent, mm. the smallest all denomination, the money. all the money that existed. And when it's created, you know, you add a new field in that database and it says was created mm. at this date, uh, was credited to this person for the work of validating the network. Uh, and you could just see basically an entire history for each coin of the mm -hmm. transactions or each cent of how it moved around and stuff. It's actually a really cool image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, a, it's like, a cool vision. Yeah, yeah. And obviously when you think about that, that becomes incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what makes it very secure because say you wanted to like defraud, say you wanted to post a, a new version of the database that just said, I own all of it, right? Mm. It would be very hard to reconcile that with the existing mesh network of transactions that exist, right? Mm. That's what makes it secure. Yeah. Right? yeah. Nice. Cool. Interesting. So we um, said we said an NFT, sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, just, just to say like currency is one of the early uses. But if you think about that technology, as we're kind of discussing through NFTs, currency is a good use case, but no reason for it to be the only use case or the prime use case. Yeah, nice. Currency is a nice segue here. So we said that an NFT is a non-fungible token. Let's just quickly break down those words. What is fungibility? Fungibility is the quality of something being interchangeable. And we're talking about currency. For example, five pounds, five dollars is exactly the same as another five pounds or five dollars. Yeah. I mean, so, pounds and dollars aren't the same as each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> but, no, I mean, the, the other example is of basically commodities. Yeah. Commodities are fungible. If, if say I'm selling steel and I promised Jake five tons of steel, right? Mm. There is no commitment to the specific five tons of steel. I could say I owe Jake five tons of steel in three months. I could sell my current steel and buy another five tons to give to him later. That means they're fungible. It no, basically, I want, it basically I the original means, steel. <laughs> <laughs> it basically means swappable, non-unique. Yes, exactly. That's the point where NFTs differ from cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin is the same. Bitcoin is fungible. One Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin. Yeah. If but, I owe someone one Bitcoin, they do not, they're not going to look at that table ledger and say, I want this specific row. They will accept any Bitcoin. Lovely. So non-fungible is the unique part and tokens are, we've talked a lot about the data and the ledgers. Uh, tokens represent the fact that an NFT is a unique unit of data stored on a digital ledger called a blockchain. So we, we've gone over that already. Hopefully now the definition of an NFT is pretty clear. Yeah. In the modern context, right? Mm. When you think about this NFT stuff, you know, we gave an example of our cap table. We gave an example of a fungible token, so cryptocurrencies. But, you know, the example of NFTs that we're really seeing at the moment, generally, uh, is it being associated with pieces of digital art, mm. um, often visual, video or audio. And I think this is part of the nuance of it, right? Of is this a Ponzi scheme or not? I think the modern context really is, <laughs> this is this is very loaded, so, you know, people can see what my opinion is already, probably, but like, hmm. basically pointless little pixel arts, mm. you know, is the main thing. When you think of NFTs at the moment, you basically think, like pictures of monkeys and pixel yeah. art and stuff. And they're starting to build more things around it, like using those as access for communities and things like that. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, as as the South Park thing kind of jokes about like, oh, I've got this little uh, pixelated green panda on a skateboard. Like, <laughs> it's kind of this, in a sense, like it's, <laughs> we'll talk about what art is. We've not done that yet. But, you know, it's not even really art. It's because it, it's not like mm. high effort, unique, visually appealing, emotionally resonant to, to the extent that that is what defines art. We'll, we'll talk about it in a second. But yeah, despite what many people believe, ownership of the token associated with a piece actually doesn't even confer the copyright of that piece, right? Mm. So you'll see a lot of Twitter Twitter threads that really make me laugh where like people are like, bought this NFT and someone like right click saves as <laughs> post, and like replies and posts it and says, I have your NFT. And then they reply like, hey, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> it's like, that's not how NFTs work. Another one, a bunch of crypto bros put together like two million dollars or something but an early edition dune oh the book. god like the one that came out as a movie frank yeah yeah, yeah and they were like now that we have the copyright we're going to be uh talking to netflix about a about a series and stuff and it's like guys no 
you've just bought an old version of the book. <laughs> like, you don't own the copyright to what's in the book, which is a great example of maybe not the limitations of NFTs, but how the public perception of NFTs and what they actually are have fallen so out of step that mm. it perhaps does give some credence to the argument that, you know, it's maybe not like nefariously a bubble or Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme, but like something seems to be a little bit broken and or, or people don't seem to understand. Mm. Um, Jacob. No, it's true. I mean, that leads to a really interesting question about the ownership of art, which is another point of philosophy that we'll come to in a minute. I have a quote here from ethereum.org. And don't forget that NFTs, uh, they, they run on the Ethereum blockchain, right? Uh, is not, it not, exclu- not exclusively. Okay, okay. So, so to clarify, I, I, one analogy I've heard that's a nice way of thinking about something like Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Okay, blockchain is basically this ledger. Sorry, guys, this is a bit of crypto bit technical. stuff, technical stuff. Ethereum is more like this ledger, but you can... It's got smart contracts. You can, so, you can write yeah. programs into it. It's yeah. Turing complete, which means kind of, if you think of a computer as like something that processes a database and then uses that data to like do stuff with it, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a shared computer. That's cool. That's the best analogy I've heard describe what Ethereum is versus something like cryptocurrency. Sorry, Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is like a shared ledger. Mm-hmm. Ethereum is like a shared ledger that you can program mm-hmm. on into as well. You nice. can use the network to like program the way you're going to change it. Which is why that's being used for the creation of NFTs. Yes, exactly. Cool. Um, but th- that's one network. There's also Solana. There's also like lots of other ones, but those are the two big ones that I, I know of for NFTs particularly. Nice. Well, they have a quote here that goes, NFTs are currently taking the digital art and collectibles world by storm. Digital artists are seeing their lives change thanks to huge sales to a new crypto audience. Mm-hmm. And celebrities are joining in as they spot a new opportunity to connect with fans. But digital art is only one way to use NFTs. Really, they can be used to represent ownership of any unique asset, like a deed for an item in the digital or physical realm. If Andy Warhol had been born in the late 90s, he probably would have minted Campbell's Soup as an NFT. It's only a matter of time before Kanye puts a run of Yeezys on Ethereum. And one day, owning your car might be proved with an NFT. I mean, yeah. there's clear marketing spin going on here. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Like, I remember I was talking to um, a friend of mine, Henry, and he's quite clued up on this stuff. And he was saying that, like, if you think about the way that NFTs work, it's a digital representation of physical things that have existed for a while Mm -hmm. and the analogy he gave was watches Mm -hmm. right and watches all have unique uh, high value watches have unique serial numbers Mm. uh, and certificates that match those serial numbers and they actually also like the watch companies do actually keep a ledger Mm -hmm. of who owns that watch uh, and where it is supposed to be right oh what's the brand is it like Patek Philippe, like Patek, Patek, Patek Philippe right. or like, you know, really expensive tag hewers or Rolex and stuff. They all do this. Like you use this system of physical certificates nice. uh, and serialization on the watches to do this. It's basically a digitalization of that. And one really interesting thing that we didn't mention here mm-hmm. that's worth noting is that you remember we said that Ethereum is programmable, right? Mm-hmm. That means that you can also set rules for how it transacts, right? Mm-hmm. So one way that this has really benefited artists is that often they'll set like a take rate on each sale. Mm-hmm. Right. But we'll come back to why this is, again, perhaps a Ponzi scheme. You know, artists basically can say anytime it's sold, I get 10% of that sale. Mm. Right. So if someone buys it and sells it on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It means that the artist nice. gets a, a, a future revenue stream, not just the original sale and gets to benefit from the fact that it becomes more valuable in the future. That sounds really positive, but a little bit like Robinhood style trading apps. Right. Mm-hmm. It does also introduce a problem because think about the incentives there. If you as the artist are taking a 10% take rate, one, you want it to go up in value. Mm-hmm. And two, you want people to transact it often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But are those two things that are actually like inherently valuable 
or do they correlate with good art necessarily? No, yeah. yeah. Or, or does that correlate more with people kind of gambling on mm. things, right? In the same way that like someone thing like Robin Hood benefits when people transact, but most financial economic research and evidence suggests that you shouldn't trade often. Generally, that's not advice. Like being a day trader is actually not a smart strategy for the average person. Yeah. If it's um, not your job. Then, yeah. If you're yeah. not, if you're not like a high frequency trading hedge fund, in which case you're not using your own savings largely, mm. uh, you're mostly using the money of investors so your risk is you know there's a principal agent problem mm-hmm. um you know you really shouldn't be doing day trading nice um, so that, it introduces a small issue there that links up very nicely with the final thing to talk about in respect of nfts which is that if you've come across them in the news it has probably been in relation to crazy high valuations and you were just talking about the incentives there and trading and then prices rising i mean explaining these prices is actually just a simple case of supply and demand classic economic stuff from us mm-hmm. When people want to buy something, the price that you can charge to sell it goes up. How NFTs have grown in value is that, like you say, when one person encourages a few others to buy them in order to ensure the value of the NFT surpasses what they paid to get them, they then encourage more people to buy them. More people to buy them does start to sound a bit like one of the sort of Ponzi and Pyramid schemes we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. But with each level, the value of the NFT increases. And then you've got these people who are like really hyping it, an exponentially increasing group of people wanting to buy them, Mm. motivated by seeing how high the value is going. And it becomes much more speculative than saying like, oh, this art is really rising in value. It's actually, it's much more like shit this is something i want to get involved with this stuff is 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 like really hyped i I think it's it's um, a nice analogy for this the average person in the stock market versus someone like warren buffett Mm -hmm. right the average person in the stock market is what you would call independent in like a statistical sense which means that their actions are not connected to the value of the thing so their trades don't really affect the underlying value me buying a share in facebook does not affect the share value of facebook Hold on. Anthony Carlius is buying a share, guys. <laughs> the problem is these communities, because the number of the things available is so scarce and the mm-hmm. price that it starts at is so low and the valuation of the thing is not tied to something fundamental, like a business model or like its future revenues or anything like that. You enter this problem where like someone like Warren Buffett, for example, actually moves markets. And this is also part of the thing that people had with the whole GameStop fiasco, mm. which was that hedge funds are moving the markets all the time to benefit themselves rather than actually like understanding the market and investing to benefit from that they're actually going in shorting something and then communicating to the market this thing sucks Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and then suddenly they have this bias incentive where it's like well what happens when they do that to a company that's actually fine they just have this bias incentive to say this thing sucks so that it goes down in value so that they make money Mm -hmm. or you know if they buy options or, or leverage trades on something and then go out to the market and say, this thing's great. Warren Buffett, to be fair, wasn't a great analogy because he he has this issue more just because of his stature his and the size of his investments, right? Him, yeah. He's not actually, I, I don't want to say that Warren Buffett is someone who goes and manipulates markets. But the point is... It's no, not, not deliberately. No, no. But people take his movements as signals, yeah. right? Yeah. So when Warren Buffett says, I'm investing in something, it tends to go up in value because everyone's like, oh, Warren Buffett's the OG investment genius and he says this thing is good. It's a nice um, problem to have for yeah. Warren, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas like with NFTs... You know, if you think about art, it's funny because art is not like a business in that the value is how people perceive it. Mm -hmm. So what happens when I literally was upstairs talking to the guy in our studio on the way down and he was saying, oh, you know, someone launched an NFT project. They got a famous crypto person to like retweet it and it went up in value hugely. Right. Mm. And it's like, on the one hand, maybe that's a signal. On the other hand, the fact that you're mates with someone who's big in crypto, does that make your art any better? Mm. Like, why why should that, the fact that that has managed to convince more people to buy it, inf- impact the value of the art, right? Mm. On one hand, popularity is part of what makes art valuable. On the other hand, like, nothing there seems to communicate that the art is fundamentally more valuable. And then the result is that you kind of, you get this palpable sense of where people are creating basically non-projects. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you think about art in like the sense where it's like, oh, of course 
this is valuable. You know, you think about like masters who spent decades mastering their craft, craft yeah. making a picture that is technically amazing mm-hmm. and speaks something and makes you feel something and is impressive and beautiful, probably in its own right. And mm-hmm. that only becomes more valuable when they die, so they can't make more <laughs> and more people get to know it, etc. Well, that's kind of irrelevant that more people get to know it. I was undermining my own point. But when you think about that versus, you know, I know people where it's like, I've made an algorithm that's going to generate, like, this is a literal one from a friend of ours. I've made an algorithm that's going to generate like a thousand different pizza tokens. <laughs> with like different, Literally a picture of a pizza. Yeah, literally a pizza toppings, with different right? toppings and some will be more rare than others. Suddenly it's like, well, like, can we compare that to like Leonardo da Vinci? <laughs> <laughs> Who spent like decades honing yeah. his craft? Like the kind of more resonant understanding of why that's valuable. And part of the reason Mona Lisa is valuable is like, oh, okay, like, yes, it's visually appealing, but like there's a reason why buying a print of the Mona Lisa is significantly cheaper than buying the actual Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. which is effectively priceless. It's because like holding that physical thing, it's also knowing that that is the literal physical object that he touched. But maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe that most appreciate art for how it looks. And in which case, like, why is that more valuable than a print of the Mona Lisa? Mm. Mm. Let's talk through some of the pros quickly before we get more into the what is art, what makes art valuable, etc. Yeah. Um, just because we were doing the context and stuff with NFTs. So some of the pros. It is said by many, as I mentioned, that NFTs help digital artists. It's tough to earn a living. This is a way to actually ameliorate that and give them some mm-hmm. share of the future value. As I mentioned, they can take a rake on all sales. They're not lucky enough to be contracted for their work or make enough of commissions. Most artists can charge for their work, but often through sites like Patreon. But for them, with the magic of Control-C and Control-V, this is the whole thing where meme accounts can just copy paste their stuff yeah you make a funny cartoon someone copy paste it clips the part where it says bye blah uh, and they could repost it as their own content i think that's the thing it kind of goes back to the context that we gave you where the challenge is how you monetize art how you yeah. you know do you hide it behind a paywall there aren't really good systems in place yeah actually to be fair i do like things like patreon and i feel like nfts mm-hmm. are an interesting counterpoint to patreon because patreon basically just allows you to say like i like this creator i'm supporting them yeah nfts supposedly do that by attaching value to the piece of art itself and its transactions yeah yeah the only problem is and uh, the problem with nfts as i joked about on twitter threads is people think it like ugh, some people like to say it does but the control c control v problem still exists mm. right like just because you have the nft quote unquote that doesn't stop anyone else copy pasting it mm-hmm. they could make their own nft ledger with the exact same stuff or yeah. they could just post it on their instagram account or whatever else right no you no one can make you take it down i think the thing that people don't understand that we can be very practical about is when you own art on an nft it says that you know this user and you have your private key to prove it owns and then it has like a url like literally it's just a url to the piece of art right mm-hmm. that in no way stops anyone else opening that url control c control being mm-hmm. right copy pasting there, there's there's nothing that stops people still just reposting your art there's no legal framework for you to, to no, chase them literally. nft does not mean i own the copyright yeah it literally means that you have a little piece of paper that says this one's mine uh, there's a funny joke there's a funny joke where it's like having an nft is like being married to someone who's having sex with someone else <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah okay other people can have sex with them but i'm married to them <laughs> like i can prove that they're mine <laughs> i saw a funny cartoon actually recently where it's like frodo sam and Gollum, and they're showing Gollum a, a computer screen that says so you don't physically have the precious but <laughs> <laughs> but now you're the unique digital owner yeah i think I think, I mean, the key thing, the key the key driver behind NFTs is this whole point of scarcity. And this, to be fair, yeah. this is my kind of concern, question, like the, the thing I find sort of, I'm, I'm not convinced by with NFTs is I feel like they've basically tried to inject artificial scarcity into something that's fundamentally not, not scarce. scarce. Yeah. To quote Ethereum again, mm-hmm. as everything becomes more digital, there's a need to replicate the properties of physical items like scarcity, uniqueness, and proof of ownership. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that digital items often only work in the context of their product. For example, you can't resell an iTunes MP3 you've purchased 
used or you can't exchange one company's loyalty points for another platform's credit, even if there's a market. My, my problem is there's a huge premise there, which mm-hmm. you've just touched on, right? Exactly. There's a need to replicate the properties of physical items. Is there? I mean, like, if you're using the NFT for real world things that are scarce, like mm-hmm. equity in a company or, you know, who owns this car, mm-hmm. that makes sense, right? And that's a good use of NFTs. The question is, should you just plaster this onto something that isn't scarce? Anyone can copy paste a JPEG. And that's the thing. Yeah, JPEGs aren't scarce. Music isn't scarce. I think the one thing, and it's just a little bit lower down than that's the what. So I think the one thing that I read that actually started to convince me, although it does feel like what they're doing with NFTs is they're trying to inject scarcity. They're trying to sort of, they've identified the problem. And they're like, this solves it. And I'm not convinced that it necessarily does. It's, it's a solution. It's, yeah, it's a solution applied to the wrong problem. It's a good solution for the wrong problem. Yeah, something like that. Let's just take a quick example here. On streaming platforms, each stream of a song contributes the same amount of revenue. So that's approximately 0.00. Four dollars, so a, half a cent. Yeah, half a cent, roughly. Regardless of how much you like it. In contrast, with like NFT platforms, super fans can purchase NFT music for thousands of dollars each, with creators earning what previously would have required tens of thousands of like, or, or even millions of plays. We've got a quote from an NFT collector here called Brett Shear. He owns forty-five songs from Catalog. And he told Time Magazine, in the same way that you buy art that you want to put in your apartment, I want to listen to this music and enjoy it. And it's a different feeling to own it. Now, we, we've talked about ownership a little bit, but yeah. this this is interesting because this this mechanism actually, when I was reflecting on it, feels a little bit more like investment than, than like, it's not so much that you're like buying art. You're kind of like, you're investing in the creator as well. It's, it's a way of like showing support, which is why I likened it to Patreon earlier. It reminds me a little bit of, um, do you remember Radiohead did that stunt yeah. where they like, they released their album. I think it was in rainbows and they were like, it's free, pay what you want for it. Mm. And they actually, they saw, uh, supposedly, I don't know. I never made saw this on but they made more than normal because you had enough fans being like, I love you guys, you know, and, yeah. and, and putting loads. And then obviously most of the people just downloaded it for free, which I think I did. But, <laughs> but then it improved their reach. Yeah, it did improve their reach, which was cool. Yeah. Okay, but one thing to really clarify about this NFT collector, and this comes back to what we're saying, right? Him owning the song on Catalog, I'm not familiar with the platform Catalog. Mm. I take it that that doesn't stop anyone else listening to it. Oh, it absolutely it's does purely not. he gets to tell himself, I own this. Yeah. And and in what sense does he own it if he can't stop anyone else listening to it? No. Uh, there's just a little thing on Catalog's ledger that says, this guy owns it, but like anyone can listen to it. It kind, of, it kind of it. reminds me of um, of autographs. Like, okay, uh, so. as in... Uh, so as in like there's a sense of like this guy's pleased because he's like mm. i have the canonical version of the song like this is something that the artist made and i've got like this original like autograph-esque sort of token mm. that's like cool i've like supported these guys and i and i have this and like you know i there, there's this thing that connects me to this artist that i like and you know mm. that makes me happy autographs have a similar effect however autographs are fundamentally replicable like mm. in theory you could go and be like oh like i i Google Leonardo DiCaprio's autograph, print it and copy it. No one will be like, okay, that's genuine. But yeah, like, yeah. but the point is that you know that the, you feel like there's some connection. Right, right because right, right. in theory you met him or maybe you bought it on eBay or whatever. But like there's something that sort of ties you it's entirely to the original. It's other than emotional. <laughs> exactly. Which autographs somewhat are, yeah. right? And, I, and I, that was kind of what I was thinking when I was looking at this. And I was like, but maybe, maybe that's okay. Because maybe if it does allow fans to support creators, maybe the sort of artificial scarcity, the, the sort of effect that we've identified as being, well, artificial to reuse that word, yeah. maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's still a good mechanism for supporting creatives. Maybe it still somewhat fulfills that purpose. Okay, but counterpoint. 
Go for it. On closer inspection, okay, maybe it's financially beneficial to artists, but maybe it's not beneficial to the process of content creation, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you earn money from traded NFTs, it's in the artist's best interest to produce, first of all, as much art as possible. Ah, this is the point you were making earlier, right? Where Where, like, like, you start making this pointless art. Yeah. Right. Like, and and people are buying into it because they're like, well, the value is going to go up. And then suddenly, you know, artists are churning out. Oh, here's a 10 second clip of me like hitting an E note, <laughs> and someone's someone's buying it. It's like, oh, this is the band I love. Oh, I'm doing an E yeah. note. But and and actually, like, soon you're starting to get people who are buying it because, well, this will go up in value because someone likes it. Yeah. And then it's probably point, like, where we are now. Yeah. Which and then at some point, it's like, does anyone care about this? I don't know, but it's going up in value. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely yeah. that sort of quantity of equality risk. Mm. And I mean, I'm sure there are examples of this. I I haven't seen yet too many but there must be like tons of celebrities who are getting involved who are like minting nfts of stuff like you're saying and then yeah as you say the the quantity effect well if anything actually again the 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 autograph thing is a really good example of how nonsense this is or Mm -hmm. or paying for photos right because you then end up in this situation where yeah you get celebrities who are who have this incentive to just write a shit ton of autographs Mm. and actually often it's not even them Mm -hmm. they're getting like some assistant to just write stacks of autographs and send them off to people for money yeah or or going to events and people just paying like 50 dollars a pop to take pictures with them right mm-hmm. are they really genuine content or art no it's just people are like associating it to this thing that they, that they like and there's nothing stopping them just churning this stuff out mm-hmm. yeah yeah i always find with autographs i was like i get like meeting someone and getting it signed that's kind of cool why would you ever buy like resale <laughs> autographs yeah it like, makes no sense right it makes no sense like <laughs> if you didn't have that experience that connects yeah, yeah. you to the person totally like like keeping the ticket stub of a great concert you went to mm. i get that buying someone else's it's like why <laughs> like <laughs> the only thing that's valuable about this is the nostalgia mm. or at least that's how i perceive it okay let's talk about art now yeah, we've, we've kind of talked about it a bunch already, but we'll yeah, just let's 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 formalize it. We've said at the beginning we could potentially rephrase this episode as the future of content. What we're really talking about is monetizing content online and how NFTs enable people to do that, and is it good and does it work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we wanted to call it the future of art because I think the application of NFTs that we're really interested in is this artistic well, stuff. I mean, also to clarify, oh, you're just drawing a distinction between like, say, useful content like. It could be non-fiction text, for example. Could be, could isn't. be, could be any form of content. But I'm, what I'm distinguishing between there is you said like you know you could yeah. tie an NFT to shares in a company, yeah, or to or a, like a, a genuine physical thing. Right? Yeah, you could tie it to a genuine physical asset, and that I can actually see sort of useful applications yeah. for. Which we're talking about, the, like, the, I think the zeitgeist currently is for digital yes. art where like there isn't a fundamental value the value is perceived yeah yeah uh, and that's i mean that's uh that's a challenge with regular art similarly so so likewise so, so it's interesting to discuss so in discussing rnfts art you know we have to answer what is art so morse weitz an american philosopher argues that art isn't really definable because nothing is necessarily sufficient for art to be art in this context necessity refers to a quality that something must have in order to count as art for anything that someone could claim is necessary for art you could find a piece that most agree is art and lacks that quality Um, he kind of says that for the sufficiency argument too yeah he basically just says you need necessity and sufficiency to define something there are no conditions that meet these requirements to define what art is. That's, so, what <laughs> fundamentally hell, unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, that's, there, there's no such thing as art. Okay, yeah. interesting. Uh, since necessity and sufficiency are required, uh, yeah, it cannot be defined. Many would disagree with one of Weitz's ideas. Most people believe that there is a necessary condition for art, and that's that it's artifactual, meaning that it's an artifact. Or in simple terms, it's made by humans. So if you walk into a valley and see a beautiful view, 
that can be beautiful. It can make you feel things that make you like feel similarly to art. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, it's not art because a human didn't make it. I'd be inclined to agree with that. I think yeah, that seems... I mean, something it, it can still be beautiful. It can uh-huh. feel like art, but it's not art. If you art, photograph art... it, then fine. Yeah, at that point, you've made it artistic. At that well, no, at that point, you've selected the perspective and stuff. So there has yeah. been some effort, and you, I would suppose, are trying to elicit a feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll kind of we'll come to that in a second. Yep, yep. There's a guy called George Dickey, another philosopher, agrees with this: art is anything that's an artifact and on which society or a subgroup has placed sufficient value for it to be considered a candidate for appreciation as art. This kind of boils down to, if people think it's art, it's art. But it does at least have that sort of element of artifactuality. So the two things would be, made by humans, people agree that it's art. Mm -hmm. Now, this, yeah, herein is the problem. You start to enter realms where it's kind of like a tyranny of the majority where like a lot of people think something's art, but maybe you don't think it's art. And I think a lot of people, for example, feel that way about a lot of modern art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we certainly talked about this when we did our, we did an episode on um, listening to the music of problematic artists and we talked yeah. about art quite a bit there. Yeah, yeah. So. And also, I mean, you know, basically I'm highlighting the fact that the problem with this definition is that it's circular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it defines art as that which is considered art, but doesn't explain what art art is. So we just loop back to where we started. Mm-hmm. So not super helpful, but that's where we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what is art? Something along those lines. I, I agree that made by humans. Yeah, is, like, I'm, I'm more in the in the lines. Of I think made key. by humans elicits a feeling. And yeah, I mean, uh, my my personal my personal conjecture, yeah, would be like an intentional creation by a human to elicit an emotional response mm-hmm. or, or thoughts or feelings. Yeah, um, I, I quite like that. It's it's broad, but I think that yeah. sort of it, it excludes enough things that otherwise. Sort of, yeah. yeah. I don't know that people need to agree on something being art for it to be art, or at least it, people don't need to agree that it's good art for it to yeah, be art. Yeah. They can they can agree that it's attempt to be art. <laughs> is it is it in the eye of the artist or the eye of the beholder? That's the question. Mm. As in, if an artist creates it thinking this is art, and everyone's like, "That's crap," <laughs> I, then I don't think it's art. So I think, for example, those things where like you know you get jokes where it's like, "Oh, people walk into a modern art museum and like there's a bucket left in the middle of the room," and everyone's like, "Oh, oh, oh, oh it's amazing," and it's like. No, there was no intentional creation by a person. That's not art. And the janitor let, just accidentally left yeah, it there. Exactly. So that's not art because someone didn't intentionally create that with an intention to elicit a feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, sometimes people can make something and they can say, you know, you get these nonsense modern artists really do that. Put a bucket somewhere and it's supposed to be like a postmodern statement about what modern art is. And it's like, on the one hand, maybe that's funny in reference to what I said. So I admit, I'm, that's, that's not a good example because I might consider that art because it's, it's elicited funny. a feeling of amusement. It's, 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 yeah, it, it's, okay, let, let's take another one where people, you know, I've seen ones where like, I went to the tape recently right Mm -hmm. Uh, and i saw one where it was like a tv showing random clips of stuff of people drawing random things and it was making loud buzzing noises and stuff Mm -hmm. it it was thoroughly unenjoyable it didn't communicate anything to me and i would have been tempted to say this is not art this is lazy Mm -hmm. right interesting i wonder how much time went into (laughs) i don't know probably not much (laughs) fair okay let's move on from what is art to who owns art so ownership of art is also a relatively tricky thing to pin down now if you remember john locke famous philosopher from when was he around 1600s Something like that, Ant? Yeah. Yeah. When was John Locke around? Oh, I can't tell you the exact time. Okay. A while ago. And Locke describes ownership as property plus labor. Interesting little definition there. So he's saying by mixing paints, stone or ink with your own effort, that really sort of dates him, doesn't it? Stone or ink. You can create something that you own. That's fine as a definition that includes painting, sculptures, manuscripts, etc. But if someone were to read your book and copy it or trace your picture, they have also combined property with substantially less labor. By Locke's consideration, technically copycats also own their work since originality isn't considered to be one of the tenets of ownership. Now, I guess technically, yeah, they they sort of, they own their copy. Do they? I don't know. It's an interesting question. But the copy 
we'd like to think is of less value. Yes, exactly. But is it? Well, it elicits less feeling, I suppose. So we were saying earlier, eliciting fe- like it wasn't in the formal definitions from famous philosophers, but we were saying eliciting a feeling mm. uh, was part of it. And I'd say the better the art is, the stronger the feelings elicited and the more common those feelings are. At and- least to the problem of fraud and plagiarism, which to be fair has dogged the art world for... Yeah. Forever, forever. Like uh, you've got people copying Da Vinci's and, and trying exactly. to pass them off as. And, and like on the one hand, you know, sometimes you get art where like the technical skill required to make it. And in that case, if someone makes a copy with similar technical skill, it, it's similarly impressive, right? <laughs> yeah. But when it's, you know, a thoughtful piece and, and there's, there's context to it that adds, you know, elicits a greater feeling, like you think of Da Vinci in the context of the Middle Asia. Um, yeah, or like Middle Centuries. Uh, yeah. Not Middle Asia, Renaissance, uh, Italy and stuff like that elicits a stronger feeling than some dude who made it technically impressive so it still elicits a feeling like, wow it's pretty impressive they made mm. that what is the Mona Lisa thinking <laughs> yeah what is the Mona Lisa thinking it, it takes away I think but mm. I'd still call it art copies are still art they're just lesser forms of art right mm-hmm. this brings us to Hobbes's definition of ownership which is a little bit more arbitrary but more closely aligns with the practicality of the real world so Hobbes says the sovereign the social construct endowed with authority so governments I guess in the modern era something like that they decide who owns things as ownership is enforced through authority which the sovereign possesses now unlike Locke's definition this would exclude copycats on the grounds that our sovereign protects an original artist's claim to ownership allowing them to sue those who plagiarize them and affording no protection to the copy yeah. and that's like copyright law well, that we well, today. But, but to, to understand that that's descriptive not prescriptive mm-hmm. right so he's not saying the sovereign must enforce copyright laws he's, he's saying, saying can. he's saying whatever the sovereign says is right is right mm-hmm. because it's a communally agreed invested power that we've yeah. created through our mutual collaborations and agreements so if we have copyright laws mm-hmm. then that's basically defining it as not owning it because that's how we set the rules again a little bit circular it's basically saying ownership is according to whatever we agree and we agree whatever ownership is <laughs> <laughs> so our philosophers haven't been that helpful this yeah. time around yeah yeah but yeah i think that's some good context in art do you want to summarize your position if it's changed at all art and ownership how do you own something yeah i mean i like our definition of art a lot i like yeah. the fact that it's something created by humans elicits a feeling and i feel like it seems intuitive it seems like mm. the creator should be yeah, yeah. <laughs> vested with that sense of ownership and even if they sell it or at least recognition as the creator yeah because i think i suppose they can sell it like you, you yeah. i i guess it's it's unavoidable just to think of like paintings in this context you make a painting you mm. sell it to someone who pays a lot of money for it they get to sort of hang and look at it but yeah. you're, you're still the creator, as the creator yeah, and yeah. There, it seems like there's a sort of dual ownership yeah. effect there yeah yeah they're different types of ownership right mm. um also one that we didn't mention but is is very similar just uh, robert nozick talked about him in the context of billionaires because he talks a lot about the morality of owning things as in like how can i come to own something rightfully his model has issues in the extreme and i'm not saying it's perfect or anything but colloquially it kind of works uh, his whole thing is if you are mixing your labor with resources then you own that thing uh, that's one way to own something to make it and the other way to own something is to transact that seems like a sufficient way of saying you you own something right mm-hmm. um, it doesn't talk about the context of copyright i think copyright is useful for aligning incentives mm. right copyright is useful for protecting artists but there are limits to it and a really good example of how copyright has been screwed recently uh, is actually the song Blurred Lines, mm-hmm. right? People don't realize this, but it's it's kind of screwed the music industry, right? Because the family of Marvin Gaye successfully sued Pharrell and um, Robin Thicke, right? Robin Thicke, because the song had the, had a similar feel and groove, or whatever the the term was, to a Marvin Gaye song. It didn't have any of the same chord progressions or melodies or anything like that. What? It really? just it just felt similar, apparently, <laughs> and and they won. 
Oh my god! And for those who know how legal systems work, that sets a precedent. Mm-hmm. And so now artists can all you know, musical artists can pursue each other, saying this feels a lot like my song, <laughs> even if the chord progression isn't the same or melody no isn't way. the same. Yeah. Wow. Um, which you know, on the one hand, like you don't want people to like change one chord and say it's different. Yeah. But on the other hand, like I think the fundamental thing is that if you think about how art works, inspiration is an important part of art. Most art is synthesis of different sources of, of previous art. Right. That's really, really. that's really interesting. Um, and I'm going to look that up because I. I hadn't come across that. That's that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. You're right though, because as you're saying, like art takes inspiration. There's no, I I think there's a sort of popular conception. There's nothing truly original. It, it, like everything kind of comes from different sources, and it's just about like combining them in original ways. Well, I had another point. I was going to say I've slightly lost it. Oh, but actually, so in the context of music, one thing that's interesting is people do get away with doing covers, and I think what's what's distinct there, why covers are popular, and why that works, you credit. Don't, is you credit the artist, right? It's that sense of you're like, yeah, this is a cover of most likely a Bob Dylan song or mm. <laughs> something mm. like that. Interesting. Wow. Okay gonna have to come back and look at that that's yeah. that's crazy okay so we've given a lot of context on art ownership nfts what nfts do and don't give you ownership over particularly basically nfts don't give you the copyright you you don't because they're not literally digitally scarce you don't physically own the art right if yeah. i own a painting i may not own the rights to print the same painting but i do physically own that painting and other people can't come to my house and take it yeah now other people can make sort of copies and they can have prints and stuff like that but you have the literal original yeah you, yeah um which is you know but the big difference between a physical uh, original and a digital original which i would argue is distinct but nft fans would argue is irrelevant is that there is more context vested into the physical original say for example i know leonardo da vinci touched this mm-hmm. uh, and made this which means that it elicits a greater feeling for me mm-hmm. versus a copy whereas when you copy digital art because it's just pixels information being shown in pixels it's literally the same it's yeah, literally it's literally the same if i literally if i copy paste your jpeg it is literally the same they would argue they being nft fans would argue it's not quite the same you know much like that example you gave of someone buying quote unquote songs right even if you don't have the copyright even if other people can listen to it it's still distinct it's yeah. still like they still know that they own it which invests more emotional resonance for them so it becomes greater art mm-hmm. i don't buy that though i just don't <laughs> like, i just i don't like the the it does it, kind it, of come it, back to the art is in the eye of the beholder thing. Yeah. Like if they, but, but that's, it's not, it's more like ownership to be fair yeah, than, than yeah. what is art. Basically, fundamentally, the emotional resonance of the real Mona Lisa or a, a real original versus a, a print to me is always going to feel different. Whereas NFTs just don't have that because, you know, okay, say for example, I quote unquote own the NFT. Anytime I open it on a different screen, it's different in the same way that, you know, someone copy pasting it is different. Mm-hmm. Like it's in that it's not. <laughs> 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 uh, like even I don't have one original because anytime I anytime I refresh my browser it's new yeah right anytime I scroll my screen up and down it's new it's just pixels mm-hmm. it's just information um, yeah. sorry so what are the cons well I mean we've talked about this quite a bit already but effectively this comes back to our title question which was are NFTs effectively a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme, is the scarcity artificial to the point that it doesn't actually, like, it doesn't actually matter? Yeah. And is this actually just something that, like, crypto winners have, have sort of hyped because they need something to invest their crypto assets into? And Or because yeah. it's just beneficial to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it just another sort of wave of hype that actually yeah. everyone's like, huh, it's kind of rubbish, but yeah. like... I think, yeah, and in this context, like, remember we discussed earlier Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme, bubble. Mm-hmm. I think one of the questions, at least discussing, like, which of those three is it, is around intentionality. Yeah, massively. Right? So if I am like, oh, check out this NFT, everyone buy it. 
And I'm like, I don't care. I don't think it's good art that people can see, but I own it. So I have an incentive to drive up the value. I own the Hawaiian pizza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're an NFT mint who's like, I've made something procedural to make some pizzas. I don't care. I've heard that people have made a lot of money minting NFTs so, or making and selling NFTs. So I'm just going to do that. That to me sounds more resembling of the Ponzi or pyramid scheme. And it also feels yeah. a lot like our lived experience of people we know who are sort yeah. of yeah, yeah, who are doing this. this, right? But but on the other hand, when you think about like the rush of people who are like, I'm hearing a lot about NFTs and like people are buying them and I guess I'll buy one and they don't really care about the art. Mm. That's when I start to feel more like, mm, that sounds more like a bubble. Like no one's doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. but it's stupid. And then there is that extra third class where like, People are using NFTs to like give access to communities. It's like, okay, that that's something of actual value. Some creators, for example, might be like, oh, you know, instead of contributing to me on Patreon, you buy this NFT, it gives you access to like exclusive content or the content earlier or something. It's mm. like, okay, so now you're actually selling something that has actual value mm-hmm. and people are determining what that value is by trading it. Maybe there's a perverse incentive of some people trading up purely emotionally or trading up because they own the asset and we're talking about these perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like fundamentally, there's something useful there. And yeah. that's an interesting and cool use of NFTs. So actually, to clarify, for those who haven't, because I haven't said it yet, my overarching opinion that I'll repeat at the end is that I think the current use case is kind of bull, mm. but I think the, the the technology is really interesting. And I think it's stepping towards much more mm. useful use cases. Things like those, things like equity ownership. Like imagine if we wanted to sell equity in our company and it was just so much easier than having to go through all this company's house nonsense. And, mm-hmm. and I, like we could just, you know, there was like free exchanges for tokens and stuff. It just reduced the barriers to stuff much more. Mm-hmm. easily so what you're saying is even though the like artistic application of nfts as they currently stand is is a little bit like we're not ruling out the possibility that we'll mint an nft of this podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> well look, 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 i mean like, as an example like the use of nfts for genuine digital art mm-hmm. right say for example the kind of stuff that you used to find on deviant art i think that's the website that's one thing, right? But now this all this stuff where people are like, I've made an algorithm that's just going to print like a thousand of these things with random scarcities. It's like, why is that art? Why mm. is it like what that that that's you know? There's no effort. Like yes, you've made it, but there's no intentionality to elicit a feeling, mm-hmm. which we've said in at least in our personal descriptions seems to feel important to the creation of art. I think so. Yeah, certainly the creation of art versus a thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, you've created a thing. That doesn't mean it's art and that doesn't mean it should be perceived as valuable. If it's only perceived as valuable because people are flogging it to other people, it's a tulip. It's mm. a bubble. Um, it is. And, one... and at worst, it's a pyramid scheme where you're saying you're, that there's some business value, but there's not. So one last problem is that with NFTs being entirely digital and decentralized, and remember when we were talking about Web3, decentralization yeah. is the whole sort of ethos of that. They can be prone to bugs. For example, there was a bug in OpenSea that allowed people to purchase NFTs for far below their market price. And since they're decentralized, the error can't be rectified. In essence, the programming fault caused people to sell their assets unwillingly without any recourse. There's actually, this is this links to a, a really interesting article I was reading yesterday where this guy was looking into Web3 and he was like, okay, I'm going to make an NFT. I'm going to like kind of kind of mess with them and, and, and sort of make my point. So he made an NFT where programmatically it changed depending on where you looked at it. So on OpenSea, it was actually quite a, a nice looking piece of art. Uh, it's a mm. beautiful picture of something. And then when you buy the NFT and you look at it in your wallet, it just turns into the poo emoji. <laughs> so he made this. Yeah. So bear in mind, this is what we we're saying earlier, which is part of why it's so silly to think of NFTs as or like the blockchain art stuff. Like literally, remember we discussed that, like imagine an Excel sheet that's shared or whatever, or, mm-hmm. or a database that's shared. In NFTs, like the art part isn't even the information for the art. It's a link to like, it's, it's like a tiny URL to wherever the art is hosted. Whoever can get access to that server or that domain or wherever where it's hosted yeah. can change it. And this or is get the rid thing, of it or steal it. This is the thing that's crazy and a little bit, uh, a bit fascinating about it. And this is 
actually a fundamental flaw with the current like iteration of Web3 is that Web3 is still controlled by platforms and people mm, who have mm. access to servers. And he was saying, he was kind of shocked because he was like, I thought at least the way that you create it, you'd like impart some of the definitions like Ants talks about. You'd have the properties of the art like in the sort of NFT itself. And actually all it is is a URL. So he's saying like, yeah, you can programmatically mess with it. OpenSea then took it down. He was like, I must have violated some terms of service. I'm not sure which, yeah. but basically, yeah. If uh, anything, that actually sounds like more art because it's elicited a feeling. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that Banksy stunt where he, yep. uh, <laughs> he sold that painting of the girl with a balloon and then it shredded a point of sale, which is quite funny. Which actually made it more valuable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was the amazing thing about it. So that kind of, to be fair, that highlights some of the problems of decentralization. Yeah, we're basically the which, technology isn't currently perfect. Yeah, I'd also like to say, like, it's funny, like, I feel like, and I see this a lot, both because we, we actually do some angel investing stuff and also talk to lots of founders. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm making this thing and it's decentralized and therefore it's better or I'm doing this thing mm. I'm doing it in crypto. And one of my favorite things to ask people is, why does this need to be done in crypto, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And for something like currency, like I said, the web of interactions being on this publicly shared ledger is part of what makes it secure. It makes it hard to defraud certain transactions, right? Mm-hmm. But in a lot of use cases, it's hard to explain why actually decentralizing it is a positive thing. Why is and, it better than a standard database? Yeah, like actually it may be a more expensive and more difficult way of doing it for no good reason other than to be in crypto hype, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, like take for example all the people who lost bitcoin wallets right mm. there's no central authority to go to you know there's no bank to, to message and say hey by the way forgot my password mm-hmm. uh, can i reset it and get my money it's like nope forgot it you're gone you're out mm. right and then on the flip side like you said in practice because that's the case you then get all these platforms like coinbase like mm-hmm. crypto.com like OpenSea, that effectively become decentralized institutions in these yeah. quote-unquote decentralized uh spaces it's not actually because you know your OpenSea account has all your stuff or whatever I, actually i don't know i don't use OpenSea. i don't know if it transfers to your personal wallet or not but i know, imagine it's similar, in, in the case yeah. of something like coinbase like they have a custodian account like you don't have the private key for your bitcoin wallets you know yeah. your wallet address but like if you forgot your password you can contact coinbase support and they'll get you back in mm-hmm. right and yeah. then the other thing is again like a lot of people are like oh it's programmable it's like you know, people are like, oh, like you can make smart contracts. And I'd like, I'd like to clarify, like one, that means bugs can be exploited at scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very hard to correct them. Like Ethereum has got hacked a couple of times. They even had to fork the whole thing because of that. Um, and two, not only does that mean it's prone to bugs, but um, it still means that the contract is only as good as it is written. And then once it's out there, you can't really edit it. And we know it's, that code is really perfect. Not just bugs, but like, you know, like bugs is in like actual mistakes, but like, say that you just realized later like oh it was a bad idea to do it in this way mm-hmm. right this is a slightly flawed feature yeah yeah exactly Ugh, the whole oh, thing oh man yeah crazy yeah. interesting though really really, really interesting. interesting cool so what's your over i mean i gave my overview already what's your overview my one problem with nfts was and still is after looking into it more i just think the artificial scarcity is kind of it's not fictional useful. yeah it's, it's made up and i'm excited for some of the other applications of like nfts and blockchain of the ways in which you could apply it to like real world things i think mm-hmm. tokenizing stuff like you talked about shares you talked about like potentially linking it to owning like physical real estate i feel like mm-hmm. there are ways of using this technology yeah, yeah. even using smart contracts etc etc like yeah. that's actually potentially really useful really beneficial i just think digital art is a really hyped and somewhat like meaningless application thereof i also really like the idea of using web3 technology to like directly reward artists without the intermediating platforms who have to make their money from ads Mm -hmm. through your use of things so say for example there's a spotify there is a spotify competitor on solana for example say you pay your subscription fee and then your subscription fee is just split 
to the people, uh, accor- like to the people who listen. Uh, to be fair, that's roughly how Spotify works, but they also make ad money. They distribute according to streams, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that could just happen at lower transaction fees through cryptos and yeah. without that intermediating platform deciding the terms and then, you know, shafting artists and stuff. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm a techno optimist. So I think the technology isn't there now, but it will get there. And I think I like the principles that people are applying. I think at least the sort of principles of like disaggregation, shared ownership, there are positives in there. It reminds me of like the way people talked about the early days of the internet before sort of platform aggregation led to a lot of the problems that we've seen. Certainly, at least I'm united with them on the problems of the current state of the web, the the way that like Facebook and other platforms are incentivized to monetize our attention, which means they flog content that's not necessarily beneficial or indeed in some cases harmful. I think we can get there. I just think that there's always that trend towards centralization. And the more I've read about this, the more I'm becoming cynical. And it actually reminds me a little bit of the argument that Jack Dorsey was having with the VCs. I don't know if you saw this recently, Ant. No. He was basically saying there are a lot of VC investments into Web3 and he was like, no, you don't own Web3. This is the point. Web3 is supposed to be decentralized, but the fact is VCs are piling money into the platforms that they recognize are going to be the custodians of Web3 and are going to control it. Not to mention the fact that if you look at crypto and NFTs and stuff, it's a very small amount of people who own the majority of the value. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and likewise, okay, we were saying like, you know, hey, imagine there's a thousand people who are processing or deciding on the the, the changes that people or amendments are putting forward mm-hmm. to um, these uh, Excel database style ledgers. Yeah, you know, what happens when one person owns fifty one percent of those mm-hmm. servers? Right. Wow. Yeah. That's that's when they can basically do whatever the hell they want. Right? That's a scary sort of example of like majority ownership. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically like yeah. To give an analogy, imagine that like yeah, people own shares in a company, and the idea is like, well, there'll be good decision making because people have to do decisions that are interest of all shareholders. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, what happens when one shareholder mm-hmm. amasses fifty one percent or mm-hmm. convinces other like is willing to pay fifty one percent of shareholders? extra to do something that's beneficial to them right that was a really long episode guys thanks very much for listening jake anything to add yeah i was gonna say we'll try and put some uh, some of the stuff we referenced in the in the show notes but um i'd agree i think in answer to the question nfts future of art or a ponzi scheme i'd say potentially both certainly <laughs> certainly <laughs> potentially future of art definitely a bubble yeah but current, it could current, be a prolonged bubble current zeitgeist nonsense bubble like, mm-hmm. you know, but like the, the, I think the South Park episode had it spot on, like all this nonsense of buying like, oh, it's a pixelated panda on a skateboard. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. Future applications and particularly future applications outside of art, super useful and interesting. Yeah. Basically digitizing stuff we're already doing for high value items like watches. Yeah. 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 And I like the trend of technology in that, in that direction. Yeah. But cool. Thank you guys. Thanks for tuning yeah. in. Um, some shout outs real quick to say thank you to the Dream Factory for hosting us once more. I hopefully you agree the sound quality of this episode is, Ooh, is yeah. Yeah. oh yeah, it is nice. So that's thanks to these guys thanks to Martha Caddick as well as always for, for helping with scripting and the notes for the show and the research thank you to everyone who's left a review really appreciate it you can do so now on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts as well yeah, it's, shout it's out free it's really helpful share with your friends if you do enjoy and check out the Patreon thanks oh, yeah, guys definitely cheers guys bye